walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds. Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So I'm not going to lie or beat around the bush. This is a difficult passage. It's difficult because we can tell how Jewish Jude was. He talks about all kinds of Old Testament things here. All kinds of Old Testament things that we may not fully understand and grasp. And we're just going to look into them just a little bit this morning together. But I want some truths that we've been talking about for the past few weeks to continue to stick in our heads. Truths that are important. First and foremost, Christianity is not, what's that word? Passive. Christianity is not passive. If your Christianity is passive, so also will you be your apologetic, so also will be your evangelism. Our Christianity cannot be passive. The book of Jude calls us to a specific task. It calls us to fight because the book of Jude is about what? It's about war. It's about war. And as we know and as we have seen, your evangelism will follow your Christianity, as will your apologetic. We will continue to go ahead as long as we want to be Christians on the sideline and push that off to people that know better than us. Say, we don't really need to take part in that, now do we? So in our past few sermons, we've been following the path of the enemies of Christ that are attacking the church today. Remember, a lot of enemies are not just outside the door. Some come and sit in our pews. We've been looking at this progression from where it begins, first with an abandonment of authority. That's the first step in this attack. God's authority really doesn't matter anymore. Scripture's authority really doesn't matter anymore. We don't need to listen to what God said. It's for a different time. And times, they are changing. We can live differently now than God has called us to. So that's the first step, is we abandon authority. The second step, we abandon reason. Because without authority, we have no fight for reason. And then the last step is full corruption, acting merely on instinct alone. And that's exactly what Jude tells us happens. People abandon authority. I don't need God. I don't need a ruler in my life. I don't need someone to, to lead me and tell me what to do. So they take a step back away from that. God is no longer authority. And then as soon as authority is gone, they have no power or strength to reason because they have no argument. Because if there is not a supreme ruler who designed and created all things and is ordaining our steps and has set up boundaries for us to live inside of, then you can do basically whatever you want. You can redefine life as you choose to. So once abandonment of authority happens, then abandonment of reason, then full corruption. And then people start to live on just what feels right. And every one of us in here knows the pain that comes from doing that. When we operate only on our feelings and our emotions, when we operate on our instincts, we know that we've all made some pretty foolish decisions. Today our passage gives us three examples from history. Three examples and then six illustrations to give us clarity in identifying the enemies of Christ by exposing their true colors, which is where we get the sermon title this morning. So we're going to look briefly at each one of these three accounts, 
sketch out the illustrations, and then just a few words of encouragement. So I want everyone to be well aware that Satan is at work. This is something we don't talk about enough. Satan wants to destroy your family. Satan wants to destroy your household. Satan wants you to walk and follow him. He wants to attack this congregation. He wants to attack this place. He wants these walls knocked down. He can't get a Christ anymore, so he's coming after you. And that's the truth. He waits at the door like a prowling lion. He wants to divide us. He wants to conquer us. Boy, sounds an awful lot like all the war, doesn't it? And most of his warriors have been super in the service for him because they've not understood the gospel or its power or application enough. So what happens is churches allow all kinds of weird and strange teachings in and we don't know our Bibles well enough to get them out. So in comes this corruption. Initially, uh, the founder of Planned Parenthood, Margaret Sanger, her views were too radical. She wanted to push socialism along with uh, ideas um, of a man named Thomas Malthus. Thomas Malthus pushed for what is known as Malthusian eugenics, which basically means that we need to reorder society and get rid of the poor. The way to get rid of the poor, according to Thomas Malthus, is to kill the poor. So he had some serious ideas. I'm just going to read two of those to you this morning. But I want everyone to know that once this began at the turn of the 20th century, once this Margaret Sanger started pushing her ideas, they were too radical. And remember, we were just before two wars. America was, was still quite Christian. Today we have uh, polls that tell us 75% of the United States have Christian values. Back then, can you imagine? We're still not very far from the signing of the Declaration of Independence, still not very far from when the Puritans first came over and established churches in each town, in each city, in each county. So this Thomas Malthus, he's this guy that rises up in the late 1800s, and his ideas start to take root in some people like Margaret Sanger. And the plan went like this. Eliminate private property, take from the rich, abolish all poverty by exterminating the impoverished. That's exactly what his plan was. Exterminate the impoverished. Malthusian eugenics called for sending the diseased into areas making polluted water the only accessible source. Abortion clinics prevalent and rent cheap. The thinking was extreme to say the least. So if we take all the sick people and we put them in the, in the place where all the poor people are, and we take all the poor people and we put them together and then they try to escape, the only thing we can do is say this is the only place you can afford to rent. He said this in his population essay. The principle of population was called, it was written in 1898. It is an evident truth that whatever may be the rate of increase in the means of substance, the increase of population must be limited by it. At least after the food has been delivered and divided among the smallest shares that will support life, all children born beyond that which would be required to keep the population up to this level must necessarily perish unless room be made for them by deaths of grown persons. By the way, just let me toss this out there. He believed that if you no longer have anything to contribute to society, you'd die. 
It has appeared indeed clearly in the course of his work that in all the old states the marriages and births depend principally upon deaths and that there is no encouragement to early union so powerful as a great mortality. To act consistently, therefore, we should facilitate instead of foolishly and vainly endeavoring to impede the operations of nature in producing this mortality. And if we dread too frequent visitation from the horrid form of famine, we should seditiously encourage the other forms of destruction, which we compel nature to, instead of recommending cleanliness to the poor, we would encourage contrary habits. In our towns, we should make the streets narrower, crowd more people into houses, and the courts return of the plague. In the country, we should build our villages near stagnant pools and particularly encourage settlements in marshy and unwholesome situations. But above all, we should reprobate specific remedies for ravaging diseases and those benevolent, but much mistaken men who have thought that they were doing a service to mankind by projecting schemes for the total extermination of particular disorders. And if by these similar means the annual mortality were increased from 1 in 36 or 40 to 1 in 18 or 20, we might probably, every one of us, marry at the age of puberty and yet be found absolutely starved. This man was the founding voice, the driving voice behind the founder of Planned Parenthood. Exterminate the poor. Margaret Sanger called people that don't matter human weeds. Human weeds. By offering benefits and services that are accessible for free, she wanted to exterminate them all. This is the work of Satan. Now this is coming to light. But it wasn't. It was very, very subtle before. It was very secretive. Because she came out with all these ideas and people were like, whoa, 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 you can't do that. Not here. And then when she was going to be arrested, she flew to Europe and found herself under the teaching of some bright individuals that helped her further her ideas and implement them. But while she was there in Europe, they told her, your ideas, though wonderful, will never catch on because they're too bold. You need to tone it down a notch. Gramsci, a, a man who believed in this same type of thinking, also taught that change comes in increments. It doesn't come with wholesale changes. We've all heard the idea of the boiling frog. Toss a frog into a pot of boiling water, it'll hop right out. But if you put him in and slowly turn up the heat over time, he will stay and he will eventually perish. So Margaret Sanger toned down her message a little bit. It wasn't readily accepted. So when she came back, she came back with a softer, more altruistic message. Her plan didn't change, she just found a more subtle way to accomplish it. This is how deception works. It works by toning things down. Maybe I don't want to outright come in and say I want to convert you all to some weird teaching or some weird thinking. But slowly over time, I say, hey, we're going to have a Sunday school this Sunday about, and I'm going to do something really strange to you all. And at first it seems like, oh, that's something new. Maybe we should go and we should listen to what he has to say. And then no one picks up on it. And before long, there is an entire group of hundreds of people flown out of the United States that die in Jonestown. There's an entire group of people that fly down to Waco, Texas and die because a man poisoned them with ideas. Why is that? Because the authority of God is rejected and reclaimed with truth that is not true. 
Truth and morality become relative, abandoning reason, and we become a culture driven by instinct alone. The goal of life becomes personal peace and affluence. What does this look like? What does it look like when you abandon authority? Well, I just gave you a contemporary example. Let's go with the example we have in Scripture here. I'm just going to, in passing, give this one to everyone. Cain and Abel, the first two sons born of the human race, both bring gifts to God. Abel's is accepted by God. He has regard for Abel's gift, yet for Cain's he does not. We're not told the exact reason in Scripture as to why one was acceptable over the other. It really doesn't matter. The fact is they knew when they came. So Cain, being angry, destroyed his brother. He no longer had a regard for authority and could not be reasoned with, so he acted on instinct alone. God told him he didn't do well, and Cain didn't like it. So what's he do? He disgraces the image of God. The image of God that he bore by destroying an image bearer. We're told in our passage from Jude that he abandoned himself. Meaning reason and rational faculties are gone. He set himself aside. Not going to worry about this anymore. He's going to take care of things on his own. Why? Because he thought there was something to be gained by it. And instead of gaining, he was cast away from God's presence in a punishment that Cain called worse than death. Worse than what he inflicted on his brother. Abandon authority, abandon reason, act on instinct. The well-known atheist Daniel C. Dennett, in his response to a summary of fellow atheist Sam Harris, appeals to reason, but not to authority. And he goes on to review Sam Harris's uh, book and promotes the idea that there is no free will, that we're all operating according to our evolution as humans and thereby are not as accountable for our actions as we may think. So here's the basic idea. You and I are acting in a pattern that has been given to us from slime. So as slime made decisions that would make that slime uh, live the longest and the best, so the next step in evolution has done the same, and the next step in evolution has done the same. So the choices that we make are simply only to make us go farther. So Harris says there is no free will. We can't really make decisions that matter because we're just operating according to this, this predetermined evolutionary idea. Harris says we don't have the kind of free will that would ground such absolute responsibility for either the harm or the good we cause in our lives. Meaning if you do something bad, you're really not responsible for it. Can you imagine living in that world? Where if you go out in the street today and you decide you don't like someone and you kill them, there's nothing that can be done about it? That's not the world any of us want to live in. Now he backtracks when we get to the specifics like that, which I won't go into this morning. He does backtrack. But in other words, his worldview teaches that ultimately you and I are acting according to a script written by the evolutionary process. We operate according to biological instincts that will bring about the best... This is... This is classic here of his thinking, he'll bring about the well-being of conscious humanity. It sounds nice. He wants to bring about the best possible end for conscious humanity. 
So everyone should be thinking the same thing that I am. What about unconscious humanity? What about people who are living on machines right now that have the possibility of coming back? What about people who are living on machines right now, they need help to breathe, but they're still conscious? Do they have any value? God's word says they do. Sam Harris says no. The truth is you don't matter as an individual in this worldview. Only as a part of the whole. So if you're part of the contributing mass that contributes something good to society, yes, if you can work, and if you can work to bring about the well-being of others, then you matter. And if something keeps you from doing that, you don't. That is what he says. But you see what happened there is he's, he's evaluating life on reason alone. Well, it just makes good sense that if you can contribute to society that you should survive, and if you can't, then you shouldn't. But in so doing, he has rejected authority because God tells us that every single person in here is made in the image of who? Of God Almighty. Which means you are valuable and you have dignity and you have worth. Personal, individual, dignity and value and worth because you bear his image. Get up in the mirror and don't care what you look like or you're worried about what you look like. It shouldn't matter. God says in Isaiah... Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. Really, what your evaluation is of yourself or what others evaluate you to be really doesn't matter in the end of the day. It's what God sees and it's what God says. Cain abandoned that. He tossed that away. I'll give just a quick example of how this plays out. Don't answer out loud. I want you all to picture for just a minute there's six people on a boat and you're one of them. You're out in the middle of a sea. This is going to play out this evolutionary thinking for just a moment and this is the thinking that is uh, in our culture today. You're on this ship and you're out to sea. There are only six of you on it. It's full of cargo. The storm rises up and it seems as though the boat's going to crash. Everyone's like, yeah, right, we have GPS, we have all that. That's down, okay? You're Gilligan. Here you are on this boat. Five other people other than you. You've already thrown everything else overboard. This thing is going to sink unless three people are gone. Who goes? Well, Christianity tells us, well, I would sacrifice myself. I'll go, so I go and step on the ledge. Meanwhile, I look back and the other five are like, you, no, you, no, you, no, you, no, you. How do they decide? Who? How would you decide? It's not like you can pass on your self-sacrifice and say, come on, let's let these other ones live. You can try. Well, these other five people don't share a worldview with you, and they all want to live. So how do they go through and decide which three survive? Well, they abandon authority because already they do not want to sacrifice themselves. They all want to survive. They abandon reason because they've already tried reasoning with one another. They all want to stay, all five. So what do they turn to then? Instinct. And it's a fight. And no matter whether or not you hop off the boat, there are still five people back there fighting over who is going to survive. This is what's in front of us today. Today, New York State is talking about euthanasia. New York State is. 2012... John and Barbara Weiss in Illinois, Wise, excuse me, 
loving couple, very loving. This is graphic, but, but this just gives a point of, of what's happening here. Anybody familiar with John and Barb Wise? We will be now. Barbara has uh, an aneurysm and goes into the hospital, and she's on machines, and she's recovering. Her husband comes and visits her every day. On this particular Tuesday morning, he comes in with a gun, kisses her on the head, and shoots her, and she dies. They say, why would you do something like this? He says, because we had a pact that we would never let one another live in this condition. Three doctors examined her that morning and all said that she was turning around. So this went to trial, went to courts. What should they do? This was a man who loved his wife and didn't want to see her suffer. Took her life. The jury was hung up for six days trying to decide what, what to do with this man. This was an act of love. This was an act of salvation. He was keeping her from pain and suffering. Although every medical examination said this was not so. So what's on the table was 60 years in prison. He was 66 years old. She was 65. The attorney comes in and says, we surely cannot put this man into jail for 60 years. You might as well give him a life sentence. Why don't we reduce the sentence to six years? Three years for carrying a gun into a hospital and three years for discharging a gun in a hospital. He said, we can't do that. There needs to be justice. Final verdict, six years. Three years for carrying a gun into a hospital, three years for discharging it, nothing for murder. Killed his wife. What we did in allowing that was set a precedent because we said that her life was not worth saving. Her life was not worth saving. We've got to be so careful with this. So careful with this. We abandon authority. We make ourselves authority. Reason really doesn't work anymore, and thereby we just act instinctively. Second example is Balaam. Uh, Balaam is called to go out and to curse God's people. And um, Balaam says to Balak's uh, servants, or Balak's servants, excuse me, uh, well, hold on a minute, let me go talk to God and see what he wants. He goes, says, God, should I go and curse Israel? And God says, no. You shall not go with them. So, okay. Goes back to Balak's servants and says, I, I can't go with you. I won't do it. God says I can't curse them. Say, okay. So they go back and say, sir, he said he will not come and curse them. He says, well, take some, some better people than you with you this time, some more noble people. Go out and tell them, I'll give them anything. I'll give them anything. So they come to him, say, Balaam, will you come to us now? And what Balaam should have done is what we all should do when we know what the word of God says. And not when. But what's he do? He does what the three-year-old child does that wants candy. And mom already said no once. Maybe she'll say yes this time. Because mom says, God, should I go with them? God says, yeah, go. So he goes and says in the next few verses that God was angry. People say, well, that doesn't make sense. God told him to go. Yes, but God had already told him not to go. He was acting on his own authority, even coming back and questioning God once more. So he's on this donkey, and this strange mishap happens, and his hand gets pinched between the donkey and a wall, and, he, and he's, the donkey's already been stalling, so he picks up and hits the donkey, and the donkey starts talking. 
Turns out the donkey saved him from being slaughtered by this angel with a sword. What did Balaam do wrong? He rejected authority. He rejected reason. He acted on instinct. He was offered a pretty sum to go. Last illustration. This is a hard one for us to reckon. So Israel is in captivity in Egypt. They are slaves. They are slaves to a degree that none of us will ever understand. Imagine some tyrant took over GM, boxed everyone up in there and told them, I want you to continue making Silverados, but you no longer get any materials. Find that for yourself. We would all say, how ridiculous. This was the event that took place in Egypt. God's people were so disregarded, they were so hated, they said, yes, you will still continue to be our slaves, you will still continue to make brick, but go find your own materials. So God raises up a man. His name is Moses. Moses is the man who will speak under God's authority to God's people. And they get out in the wilderness, Korah and his buddies don't like it, so they challenge him. And what they've done is they've rejected God's authority and they've rejected reason, so they come with this argument acting on instinct. But without authority, we have no ability to reason and there's no basis for it. That's, that's the reason for it. It causes us to reason only on instinct. And life virtually has no value at all. So we just look at these examples real quick of what we're talking about here. What does these true colors look like? Well, he gives us this beautiful imagery, similar to his brother James. It says, they are hidden reefs. Hidden reefs, excuse me. So we're talking about a reef in the sea, like coral reef, that you can't see from the boat. So you drive over it, it pokes a hole through your wooden boat, and you sink. This is what these people are to our congregation. They come in, and they have their poison, and they spread it, and they cause our boat to sink, or at least they want to. What else are they in the passage? They're shepherds that feed themselves. So they are shepherds that should be helping take care of the flock, but instead they only care about themselves, so they don't care about the flock. What else are they? Waterless clouds. They have nothing to contribute to growth. So a cloud out there that uh, passes by, blocks the sun from a plant, and also will not rain on it is worthless. We don't need that. This year has been a particularly good year for tomatoes, at least for me. It shouldn't be a subjective thing. I really haven't had to do all that much. The skies and conditions have been perfect. There's been lots and lots of sun, heat, humidity, and we've had lots of rain. It's really been the perfect condition. But imagine if all those clouds in the sky didn't bear any water at all. All they did was blocked out the sun. That does no good to your growth or mine, and that's what these people are. There are also fruitless trees that offer no life. There's nothing you can go to from these people and collect from them. No knowledge, no wisdom, no skill that will do anything good for your soul. They will do nothing but destroy you. Wild waves cannot be used because they're out of control. So in a sea, sometimes the wind is used, sometimes the waves are used. But sometimes you get to these waves that are just crossing every which way and tossing up foam. This is what these people are. They can't get you anywhere good and all they do is cast up the foam of their shame. So another nautical illustration, the last one actually, is wandering stars. 
And if you and I were out to sea today, we could actually use the stars as soon as it becomes dark to figure out our way. But what about those falling stars? Can you guide your way home on a falling star? All God's people said, no. It's always changing. What about those stars that are slowly falling? Slowly, you can barely tell they're moving, but they're moving. Can they guide us home? All God's people said, no, they can't. You can't pattern your life after these people. They come in with these strange teachings, and it's culture spreading like a cancer. I want to end uh, with an exhortation, with an encouragement for everyone, but before I do... I want to break your heart a little bit about this because I don't think that we realize how practical this actually is. Anybody remember these people? It's pretty recent, the guards. Should remember, I mean, it was a worldwide case. They're holding baby Charlie there. Charlie was an infant boy from London, born with a, a mitochondrial DNA depletion syndrome, a rare genetic disorder that causes progressive brain damage and muscle failure, has no treatment and usually causes death in infancy. The case became controversial because the medical team and parents disagreed about whether the experimental treatment was in the best interest of the child. October 2016, Charlie was transferred to London's Great Ormont Street Hospital, a National Health Service children's hospital, because he was failing to thrive and his breathing was shallow. He was placed on medical ventilation and he was diagnosed. A neurologist in New York, uh, Hirano, who was working on an experimental treatment based on nucleoside supplementation with human MDDS patients was contacted. He and the hospital agreed to proceed with the treatment to be conducted at that hospital and paid for by the NHS. Hirano was invited to, come to, invited to come to the hospital and examine Charlie, but did not visit at that time. In January, after Charlie had seizures that caused brain damage, the hospital formed their view that further treatment was futile and might prolong suffering. They began discussions with the parents about ending life support and um, providing palliative care. Charlie's parents still wanted to try the experimental treatment, and they raised funds to transfer to a hospital in New York. In February 2017, the hospital asked the high court to override the parents' decision. Did you hear that? The hospital asked the courts to overturn the parents' decision. Questioning the potential of the nucleoside therapy to treat Charlie's condition. So here we have a doctor saying this might work. Parents with nothing but hope and a government saying, no, it won't. They appealed the case to the High Court of Appeal, the Supreme Court and European Court of Human Rights. The decision of the court at the first instance was upheld at each appeal. In July 2017, after receiving a letter signed by several international practitioners defending the potential of the treatment and claiming to provide new evidence, the hospital applied to the High Court for a new hearing. Dr. Hirano visited Charlie at the hospital during the second hearing of the case at the request of the judge. After examining the scans of Charlie's muscles, Hirano determined it was too late for the treatment to help Charlie, and the parents agreed to withdraw life support. The hospital refuted Hirano's statement that it was too late for the treatment. It maintained its position throughout that Charlie's condition had deteriorated by January and to the extent that the proposed experimental treatment was futile. The second hearing at the high court, which had been arranged to hear and examine the new evidence, then became concerned with the arrangements for the withdrawal of life support. On July 27th, by consent, Charlie was transferred to hospice. Mechanical ventilation system was withdrawn, and he died the next day at the age of 11 months and 24 days. The Pope wanted to save this kid. 
The president wanted to save this kid, and we couldn't. Parents had nothing but hope. We couldn't. You know what happened in that very instant? Someone else was allowed to be God. And I'm not going to pretend like these are easy decisions for any one of us to have to make. I pray that no one in here ever has to make a decision like this. But when we abandon God from our thinking, when our thinking is not first God, then reason, when we abandon reason second, we rely only on instinct and instinct alone. I put this up here because this idea, this type of thinking has real life implications. Here we think the Bible is just for Sunday service. It's not. How you and I handle what's in here will determine life and death for some people. It will determine whether or not your next day is filled with joy or filled with detriment. When authority is rejected, there is no basis for reason and we operate on instinct alone. This pattern is so true. So what can we do about this? What can we do? As people living in 2019, headed to 2020, what can we do about this? We've got to be aware of these teachings. That these things can sneak into the church, they can fill our heads full of poison. We have to be aware that it's out there. Every single Christian does not have your best interests in mind. And in saying that, I also want to put this forth for everyone. Read the things that I tell you for yourself. If I say something like the Bible says when we reject authority, there's no basis for reason and we operate on instinct alone, read it and look and make sure that I'm not lying to you. If I tell you that the Bible says we should care about this, write those passages down and look them up. Make sure I didn't take them out of context. Do you know how many false teachers knew they were false teachers? None in the beginning. They all thought they were doing something good something right. Now, maybe not all of them. Maybe some of them just were out as these wolves and wanted to rip people apart. But it's such a subtle thing. It takes one teaching, one idea to change everything. Second, immerse yourself in the study of Scripture. Where? Here is a good place to do that. Sunday mornings we get together, we read the Bible. I hope that this is the most intense uh, study that you have throughout the week. But I pray Going forward, you will have an even more intense study on your own. Read the Bible as it's written. Try to understand it as God has spoken these things and not as we want to understand them. So when you hear something really strange, really bizarre, look into it and see what it is. Immerse yourself in the study of Scripture so you know what to say to people. I have more conversations throughout the week about the authority of Scripture without those people knowing that that's what I'm arguing for. And I'm not perfect at it. And I have a lot of times where I don't have answers for people. But I can see, as I'm dealing with different people, little tiny bits sinking in. Not because I'm saying, well, 1 Corinthians says this. I simply say, well, you matter as a person. You, you may not matter to you, but you matter to someone. And then eventually that conversation can get us to the image of God. It has in many cases. We need to immerse ourselves, knowing the truth through carefully studying God's word, not only personally, but as a church body. And lastly, reject all teaching that contradicts Scripture. Any teaching that contradicts what the Bible says, we toss that aside. So when you hear someone say, like, well, we live in a different time. No. 
No. God is the God of time. He created it. You know, it's taught to us that there's one way, one truth, right? What's his name? Jesus. A few years ago in an interview, Oprah Winfrey was talking about how there has to be more than one way, and a woman stood up in the crowd, and God bless her. I hope that God is still blessing her even to this day. She said, no, Oprah. There's one way, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Oprah says, there can't be just one way. There has to be more than one way, and the woman stood her ground. As a matter of fact, the audience started coming alongside her also. One way, one way. God looked down and saw you all. He saw me. He saw our lives. He knew what today would be like. He knew about our weaknesses. He knew about our faults. He knew about the times when you and I would lie to one another. He knew about the times when we would seek after something that would harm us. He knew when we would denigrate the image of God, not only on ourselves, but other people. He looked on all that stuff. He looked on the issues that New York State is fighting against right now. He looked on the issues that our country is in turmoil about. He looked on all of that. Not only that, he looked beyond that. He looked on the world. He looked down on Israel. He looked down in Iran. He looked down and he saw all of these souls that he had preordained for heaven. And you know what he said? In all the slaughter and the massacre and the blood, I'm going down. And he came and he tabernacled among us. And he lived the perfect life. And when God comes down and becomes a man, he clothes himself with flesh, he really lives life. He's really tempted in the same way we are. Yet he's without sin. He really lives in such a way that we can pattern our lives after and find joy and strength. He really gives us real boundaries that are good for you and I that will bring about the best possible life, not only for you, not only for myself, but for our families. And this is what he's called us to do. And when he hung on that cross, three nails pierced his flesh, and his blood was poured out. He suffered in agony. Why? Because you matter. Because you're important. Christ sat at that table that night and washed the feet of the man who would betray him. He ate supper with him. Went to the garden and he prayed. Asked that the hour be taken from him. But your will be done and not mine. He marched forth carrying his cross for you and for me. Do you think that message was meant only to have implications on our Sunday? No. That message is meant to rip through your soul, to redeem you, and to bring every one of your thoughts in line with his. If you'll join me for a word of prayer. Now, your grace is sufficient. If only your grace, your grace is sufficient. We need not any other demonstration of your love. It is what you have given to us, and we love it. 
We love the fact that you are continually by our side. You have not left us to ourselves. That you have come down to rescue. You have come down to redeem. And you shed light in the darkest, darkest places. So Lord, there are many of us here in this place that are going through different things. There are different trials that are before us. We're really not sure where to go, what to do, but we do know that we want to follow you. So Lord, hearts that are broken this very hour, I ask you would mend. You would give strength, renewal, and restoration, and this gospel message would be applied to the wounds, to the wounds given to us by culture and by our friends and by our family and even by the church in some states, in some places. Lord, would you send us out of this place change?